Welcome to the Go and Teach Bible Study program presented by the Monta Vista Church of Christ in Phoenix, Arizona. We want to thank you for joining us today as we examine the truth of God's Word and the answers it holds to life's most important questions. If you have questions about this lesson or would like to study further, please contact us at montavistacoc.com. Now let's open our Bibles and study God's Word together. Thank you for joining me on the Go and Teach radio program. My name is Ryan Goodwin. I preach for the Monta Vista Church of Christ here in Phoenix, Arizona. If you have your Bible handy, open up to the Old Testament, and we'll be in the book of Daniel, chapter 2. Today's radio program is going to deal with a prophecy about the time and condition of the coming of the Messiah, also called the mountain, as it will be described in the text of Daniel, chapter 2, verses 31 through 45. The most important thing we can learn from this text is that Jesus came when he was appointed, when he was supposed to. He wasn't late. He wasn't an accident. He wasn't a fluke in the grand plan of God. Rather, God fulfilled his purpose perfectly at the right time and for the right reason. Or as Romans chapter 5 puts it, at the right time, Christ came and died for the ungodly. So Daniel chapter 2 gives us the historical framework for when the Messiah was going to come. It provides legitimacy to Jesus Christ and his claims. It authenticates the fact that Jesus came exactly when he was predicted and under the circumstances that were predicted. Now, for the sake of argument, if you're a Bible skeptic, just play along for a second. Let's say we sit down together over coffee, and I tell you, the basic structure of the next 500 years of human history. I'll tell you the great kingdoms or nations or empires that will arise. I'll tell you a little bit about the nature of those kingdoms, what they're like, what their leadership is like, what their strengths and their weaknesses are. And then each in turn will fall or fail in some way and be replaced by another kingdom. So not only do I tell you the basic structure of 500 years of human history, but I also write it down. And 500 years from now, people are able to read those statements in hindsight and see just how accurate they are. So that's what we have here in Daniel chapter 2. And the people of Jesus' own time period in the first century AD could look back on the five or six hundred years of human history that preceded them and see in Daniel chapter 2 just exactly the way that God had revealed it. Before we get into the text itself, let's talk about a little bit of the background. The story of Daniel took place in the 6th century B.C. He probably wrote his book sometime around 530 B.C., but a lot of the events that we read about happened a few decades earlier than that. So here in chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar, who you can read about online or in history books, was disturbed by a dream in the second year of his reign. The dream had so troubled him that he couldn't even sleep at night. 
Now, to remedy the situation, this great ruler called all of his magicians, conjurers, sorcerers, and soothsayers, according to verse 2, chapter 2. He called all of them to him and asked them to not only interpret the dream, but to recite it exactly as it happened, without him saying anything. Now, this is an important point to note, as it would be easy enough for any fake or a charlatan to interpret a dream. It's a much more miraculous thing to know what the dream is without being told and to recite it exactly as the king recalls. The wise men of the land declare that the task is too great for them, verses 10 and 11. And there's not a single one of them that could interpret the dream without being told the details of it first. Angered by this, Nebuchadnezzar orders all of the wise men of the land slaughtered, and soldiers come seeking Daniel, the namesake for the book. Now, Daniel has already obtained a noteworthy position in the kingdom for his discretion, for his wisdom, and his virtue. He is an incredibly and incomparably wise individual, and his virtue stood by him during a trial in the first chapter. Now, after praying to God, it was revealed to Daniel what he must do. With God as his protector and guide, Daniel goes before King Nebuchadnezzar and begins to declare the dream to him, which is where our text begins. Verse 31. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. So for these next few verses, Daniel describes the dream without action, simply setting up the scenario by recounting the details. In the dream, there's a great statue. It's massive and immobile. The head of the statue is made of gold, it says in verse 32. Its chest was made of silver, its belly and thighs made of bronze, its legs made of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. After describing the statue, Daniel then tells the king that a large stone was cut without hands, and that stone crushed all the parts of the statue. As it says in verses 34 and 35, it crushed every part of the statue at the same time, and they became like chaff from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. One quick point to note from the dream is that no matter how glorious the statue was, no matter what its materials were, it could not stand up to the destructive force of this great stone that grew into a massive mountain. At this point, you might be wondering why Nebuchadnezzar is so upset by a silly dream like that. It's just a giant statue that gets smashed by a huge rock that turns into a mountain. Maybe one of the reasons why Nebuchadnezzar is so disturbed by the whole thing is just because he doesn't know what it means. And in this culture, dreams and visions were seen in a very different way than they are today. We see them as more just random things that pop into our minds while we sleep, almost like dreams are the garbage disposals for strange things that we think throughout the day. But to superstitious people like the Babylonians, dreams meant a whole lot more. And the fact that this dream doesn't seem to have a really obvious meaning to it is probably what scares him so much. Now, the other part of it is that maybe Nebuchadnezzar did have a sense of what the dream meant. 
Now, he might not have fully understood. In fact, I would certainly say that he didn't understand fully what the dream meant. That's why he wanted an interpretation. But, but perhaps the reason why Nebuchadnezzar is so afraid of the dream is because he, he at least has an inkling. Maybe he just has some small sense, a, a little bit of an idea that this dream could mean something specifically for him and his kingdom. And that fills him with a sense of dread or foreboding. Now, Daniel goes on to interpret the dream, beginning in verse 36. This was the dream. Now we shall tell its interpretation before the king. You, O king, are the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he's given them into your hand, and has caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold." Here's Leupold's take on this from his exposition of Daniel. Daniel's statements are arranged in the best order. The dream is narrated without confusing it with the interpretation. The interpretation is presented in a clear-cut way as a coherent unit. Daniel even announces expressly when he makes his transition from the dream to the interpretation. The narrating of the dream was a necessity even for the king because, though he had dreamed and remembered it, The essential details may not have been noted by him with sufficient clearness. So it's also important to remember the risk that Daniel is experiencing. Remember, remember, he was almost killed just for being a wise man in the land of Babylon. So just coming before Nebuchadnezzar, he's taking his life in his own hands, or more more to Daniel's faith, he's giving his life over into God's hands and trusting God that this will all turn out right. But if the interpretation is unfavorable, Nebuchadnezzar could respond violently. He could have Daniel killed along with all the rest of the wise men in the land. So it does show a great deal of faith on Daniel's part, faith in God, that he's willing to obey the command of God in spite of the danger to himself. So he begins his interpretation by saying who that first part of the statue is. Nebuchadnezzar, you and your kingdom are the head of gold. Now, this isn't mere flattery on Daniel's part, because it was very true that God had blessed the Babylonians. At the height of their power, they were the most expansive empire in the world. They were glorious and successful in battle, prestigious in learning, advanced in mathematics and science, at least for their time period, grand in architecture and urban planning, and wealthy beyond any of their contemporaries. Behind all these advantages, though, is God. The Almighty exalts who he wants to exalt and humbles whoever he wishes to humble. That's Jeremiah chapter 18. He gives strength even to the pagan nations and blesses both the evil and the good for his purposes and that his will would be done. Next, Daniel backs up his statement that Nebuchadnezzar is the king of earthly kings by describing the expansiveness of his kingdom in verse 38. Wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he's given them into your hands. You rule over them all. He concludes quite clearly that Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold on this statue from his dream. By this statement, Daniel most likely means that Babylon and the kingdom itself is the head of gold, not necessarily just Nebuchadnezzar by himself. Nebuchadnezzar being the king is the most obvious face on that head, But it's Babylon, the empire, that is supposed to be represented in that head of gold. Moving on to verse 39 of Daniel chapter 2. 
and after you there will arise another kingdom. I like that there's an acknowledgement here that kingdoms and empires and nations, they don't last forever. Even the greatest of them, even the gilded empires from ages past, have gone the way of every extinct animal. Babylon wouldn't last forever, no matter how great it was at the time, no matter how successful, no matter how powerful it was. Someday, another kingdom will arise after you. Now, it will be inferior to you, Daniel says, than a third kingdom, another one of bronze, which will rule over all the earth, than a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and shatters all things. So like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. And in that you saw the feet and the toes, verse 41, partly of clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom. But it will have in it the toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with common clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so some of the kingdom will be strong, and some of it will be brittle. Now we'll stop here in verse 43. And in that day you saw the iron mixed with common clay. They will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as the iron does not combine with pottery. So let's take a few moments now to explain each of these kingdoms in their order. The kingdom of silver, which was inferior to the Babylonians, is the Medo-Persian Empire, which, though it was not inferior to Babylon in geographic size, it was inferior in administrative organization and national cohesion. There is almost no kingdom in the history of mankind which was so unified in its purpose as Babylon So excluding geographical size, it was superior to all of the kingdoms in every other way. The Persians, who were even less organized and successful than their Median cousins, had more memorable victories against the small Greek and Macedonian countries. While the Persians successfully invaded and conquered vast areas of land, they were unable to hold their winnings for a significant number of generations. It was an inferior kingdom. It's interesting to note how the prophecy describes the Medo-Persian Empire as being like a chest and arms. Like this kingdom of two distinctive people, the Medes and the Persians, the arms and the chest never become one single unit. Or as Leupold puts it, the two parts of the empire, which were primarily Media and Persia, are represented as being joined together as the arms and the breast are in the human body. Yet the two elements never fused so thoroughly as to become one undivided whole. Now next he says a third kingdom, which will rule over all the earth. That's most likely the Greco-Macedonian Empire, or the empire under Alexander the Great. After successfully fighting off several Persian invasions, the young Macedonian king, Alexander, led his army across the Middle East and Western Asia, all the way to modern-day India. He secured strongholds and political allies all along the way. He tried to Grecianize the peoples he left behind. In the sense that he conquered all of the known world, it could be said that his empire ruled the world, not the entire planet but what was then considered the known world, what they knew of the world, the furthest reaches of their maps, Greece was there. There was no army large enough, no kingdom organized enough to defeat Alexander. Had he lived longer, it's likely that his madness would have led him as far as modern-day China 
or into Europe had he so desired. Moving on into verse 40 and onward, there's a fourth kingdom that's described. It is a kingdom of iron. There's no doubt that this kingdom is the Roman Empire, feared by all, victorious over every army, Successful in politics and warfare, the Romans built a kingdom that outlasted, in terms of time, all of its predecessors. Now, this prophecy came true quite literally in the sense that the Romans defeated every previous empire one by one, beginning with their Greek neighbors and ending with the capture of Babylon itself. Verse 41 goes on to say, And in that you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it will be a divided kingdom. There will have a toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with the common clay. Without a doubt, the very things that made the Roman Empire so successful also eventually led to its downfall. Because the Romans were so adept at conquering their enemies, they often had trouble blending their laws and customs with those already in existence in a particular land. They tried to Romanize the world, but found the vast differences in each of their provinces led only to inner strife. Roman officials found it impossible to merge Syria and Egypt into one province, for example, and they had to deal with constant rebellion in Palestine. Being too far from the Roman political center, the far eastern provinces suffered from administrative corruption and often cruelty. In the end, the Roman Empire collapsed over a period of several hundred years until it divided into a western and eastern empire with different capitals. The western Romans were soon conquered, by northern European invaders, and it came about just as the prophecy spoke, and as the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of clay, so some of the kingdom will be strong, and part of it will be brittle. Furthermore, the failed attempts at Romanizing only resulted in the assimilated nations eventually rejecting Roman law, as you could see in verse 43. They'll not adhere to one another. Clay and iron don't stick together. They don't adhere. So all of these disparate and distinct peoples in the Roman Empire could never have one cohesive Roman identity or Roman culture. Okay, we've spent a long time talking about ancient civilizations and strange dreams from the book of Daniel. You're probably wondering, what's the point? What is the purpose of this vision? And why should a Christian care about what happened in Daniel chapter 2? Well, the text says here in verses 44 and 45, And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. In the days of that fourth empire, God would set up a kingdom which would be impossible to destroy. That kingdom, of course, is Christ's kingdom. And the most important lesson that can be learned from this passage is that Christ came and fulfilled his mission at exactly the right time. Hundreds of years before the fact, God predicted through the dream of Nebuchadnezzar that he would establish his kingdom in the days of the Roman Empire. Not before, not after, but during. 
That kingdom will not be left to another people, he says. Having proven the fact and proven the point that no earthly kingdom is eternal, God now promises that his kingdom would never be conquered and it would never be given to another nation. While Babylon would be inherited by the Persians and the Medes, and Persia would be conquered by the Macedonians, and the Macedonians would in turn be assimilated by the Romans, Christ's kingdom would last for all the rest of mankind's history. We need to make the point here that this text teaches us that no new church is going to be established after the one in the first century. Therefore, no new religious movement can claim that it's God's kingdom because it does not fit the time requirement of Daniel chapter 2. If your church wasn't started during the time of the Roman Empire, you're not part of Christ's church. If your church is not the one that was predicted in Daniel chapter 2, and the church that was given in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost, you are not in Christ's church. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever, the text says. This verse isn't saying that Christians will be given the task of conquering the physical world. Rather, God means that in Christ, all ethnic, political, and physical boundaries shall be meaningless In that sense, the people of God are not limited by political borders. And no government of this world can destroy the power of God. When people become Christians, they cast aside their differences and they hold hands in fellowship. Romans and Greeks together, Jews in the first century and their Gentile neighbors, people today from every walk of life and every race and every background We're all one in Christ Jesus. The book of Galatians puts it very eloquently. In Galatians chapter 3, it says here, beginning in verse 26, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. As Daniel closes his interpretation of the dream, he reaffirms once again in verse 45 that it's a privilege for Nebuchadnezzar to be given this knowledge. Not everybody gets to see visions of the future, and especially have them interpreted to perfection by a man inspired by God. We need to remember, the dream is true and its interpretation trustworthy. I wonder how long Daniel held his breath, by the way, here to find out what Nebuchadnezzar's response was going to be. The most powerful man in the world was just told that even his great kingdom, a kingdom of gold and splendor, was eventually going to be surpassed and defeated by somebody else. And in response, this is what Nebuchadnezzar said. Verse 47, after falling on his face and paying homage to Daniel, he says, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, since you have been able to reveal this mystery. And after giving Daniel presents and gifts and fragrant incense, he promotes him and he makes him the ruler of the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel essentially becomes one of the most powerful men in the Babylonian Empire under Nebuchadnezzar. 
Now, that was probably a best-case scenario result for Daniel. But we have to remember something here. Daniel spoke so boldly, not because he actually believed that Nebuchadnezzar was going to receive the message well, not because he actually believed that he was going to be enriched by speaking the truth. No, Daniel was bold because he trusted in God. Daniel was bold because he knew that if God gave him information, if God gave him power, if God gave him interpretation, then it was truth. And he needed to speak truth no matter what the consequences were. And if Nebuchadnezzar had had Daniel killed in a rage, well, then Daniel would have accepted that too. And Daniel's reward in heaven is great. Our reward in heaven is great also if we listen to the message of the gospel. In short, Mark 16, verse 16 says, He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. And you can become part of the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ if you believe in his name and are baptized. You can be part of the kingdom predicted in Daniel chapter 2. A kingdom that will never be torn down, never destroyed. So please, respond to the call of the gospel today. And let us know how we can help you in any way. Thank you for joining us today. To hear this program again, please visit our website at montavistacoc.com. If you're in the Phoenix area, come visit us at the Montavista Church of Christ. We're located at 2202 North 40th Street. We have Bible classes for all ages each Sunday morning at 9.30 and again on Wednesday night at 7. For more information about the Monta Vista Church of Christ or to request a personal Bible study, please go to montavistacoc.com. Amen.